Welcome back to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW. I am Maureen McGrath. I am your hostess for this evening and every other Sunday evening when I come to you live for Sex Talk. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you for staying with me for this session, for yet another session about sex and relationships and love and health and the whole nine yards. Uh, You know, in my clinical practice, people present... Uh, often very stressed out. And sometimes I see men will come in and they are so stressed about being the primary breadwinner. Finances are the number one most contentious issue in marriages today, second only to sex. I would have thought it was sex was first, but no, it's finances. And I can see that. And so many men are stressed about this by being the only one, especially if they are married to somebody or living with somebody or in a relationship with somebody who likes to spend a lot. And uh, so I and I have to say, my response has always been, uh, you know, it's so great working. Like, why, why, why are you bringing this on yourself? You know, it's it's honestly, it's a Sometimes it's a whole lot easier to head down to the office, go out for lunch, have some meetings, maybe some drinks after work, than, you know, get cleaning the high chair, getting out the organic food for the baby in the ice cube trays, you know, making sure everything is perfect, making cleaning your house yet again. Uh, if you are a stay-at-home mom, I mean, it's fabulous to be a mom and to be a stay-at-home mom. And for those people who have been able to afford that at any time in their lives, that's fantastic. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like being a mother. But it can become boring and it be- can become routine. And uh, But men quite often take on this pressure. And they, they'll say that I have this pressure about... Uh, being the primary breadwinner. And I suppose they have this internal turmoil where they say, what if I lose my job? What if I'm not good enough? What if I can't make enough money? What if I can't make this mortgage payment and put food on the table? So this, these are some of the stresses that I have certainly heard over the years. And in my clinical practice, of course, it has related to uh, the bedroom activities. And so they're stressed and then they're not having sex in part because it's a very difficult job to be a stay-at-home mom, and it's it's busy and it's active, and sometimes the, the kids just don't stop, and there's no time for a break or a rest, and perhaps you're doing all of the home finances, that, that kind of thing. Certainly, women do still do the lion's share of the housework, whether they are working or not. Uh, so... There's a new study that I found really interesting because men's attitudes towards working can be very different than women's attitudes towards working. And now there's a study that supports this. So being the primary breadwinner is bad for men's psychological well-being and health. That doesn't mean you all quit your jobs. Don't send in those resignation letters tomorrow. Gendered expectations in marriage are not just bad for women, they're also bad for men. And this is according to a new study by the University of Connecticut, UConn, my neck of the woods, uh, UConn sociologist. The study was called Relative Income, Psychological Well-Being and Health is Breadwinning, Hazardous or Protective. And it was done by Kristen Munch, who's an assistant professor of sociology at UConn. Uh, They used some data from the same nationally representative group of married men and women over 15 years. So this is a pretty robust research study um, that was done. 
So the authors examined the relationship between men's and women's relative income contributions and found that as men took on more financial responsibility in their marriages, their psychological well-being and health declined. Men's psychological well-being and health were at their worst during the years when they were their family's sole breadwinner. So during these years, they had psychological well-being scores that were 5% lower and health scores that were 3.5% lower on average than in the years when their partners contributed equally. I do hear a lot of men say, if my wife would just go out and work or if my partner would just go out and work, uh, we're having financial problems. A lot of marriages break up because of financial problems. There's bill collectors I've heard. Uh, couples talk about and then the arguing begins and the stress adds up and the according to the guy he'll say if only she will go out and work and get a job and contribute and she is so entrenched in her role as a mother uh, as a stay-at-home mom she doesn't see the value in going out to work sometimes women are forced to go out to work and they actually don't find it all that bad. Of course, once they get childcare uh, in place, and that can be a very expensive proposition here in this province. But a lot of what we know about how gender plays out in marriages focuses on the way, the ways in which women are disadvantaged. So, for example, women are more likely to be victims of domestic violence. And as I said, they perform the lion's share of the housework. And, but this study contributed to the growing body of research that demonstrates or underscores the ways in which gendered expectations are harmful for men too. So it's it's harmful for women. We know that, but we didn't realize it was harmful for men. That's why when men lose their jobs, it can be so much more devastating than when a woman loses her job because a woman often will think, I'll just get back at it. I'll just get another job. I'll do whatever it takes. Men are expected to be, are expected to be the breadwinners. So providing for one's family with little or no help has negative repercussions. Breadwinning has the opposite effect for women, and and I know this to be true. I was speaking with a group of women, all successful women, all very happy, all mothers, all loved going out to work. Kids different ages, uh, most of them were had already been were already in school, so they uh, none of them were actually uh, mothering little babies uh, or small children, but. Um, the breadwinning, interestingly enough, has the opposite effect for women when it comes to psychological well-being. Women's psychological well-being improved as they made greater economic contributions. Conversely, as they contributed less relative to their spouses, their psychological well-being declined. Relative income was unrelated to women's health. And this, I find, is also really interesting because I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but this whole um, stay-at-home mom versus the working mom and which is the better mom. And women are at each other about this, and women can be brutal to one another about this issue. So, you know, and, and often I would observe that the moms that were working were far more put together. <laughs> Their houses were neater and tidier. They were ready to welcome a group of firefighters into that neat and tidy house. Whereas the stay-at-home mom, I always felt their attitude was, I can do this later. I'll clean the house later. I'll get to it later. I don't have to look that great. I'm not going anywhere. So the attitudes uh, were different. But what the common denominator was, was the children and whose children were being mothered better. 
And so this may have an impact on children's health as well, because if a mother is healthier because she's working outside of the home or she's uh, contributing to breadwinning, then their children may have higher self-esteem. There may be, this may warrant some further research, but Munch attributes these psychological well-being differences to cultural expectations for men and women. Men who make a lot more money than their partners may approach breadwinning with a sense of obligation and worry about maintaining that. Women, on the other hand, may approach breadwinning as an opportunity or choice. Breadwinning women may feel a sense of pride without worrying what others will say if they can't or don't maintain it. You don't really feel that sorry for women when they lose their job, but when a man loses their job, you're like, oh, he's lost his job because you know the impact that is going to have on his mental health. And and I know of a couple recently where he lost his job. He didn't work for two years. He was treating his family terribly. And uh, he was unaware of that. And his wife, who was completely in love with him, didn't know what to do. And she decided to write him a letter and and that seemed to, it was the only way. She couldn't speak to him. He got depressed. And that's not uncommon. I hear of men who lose their jobs, and instead of thinking positively, and I'll get something else, they might take to the, the remote control and the beer, and they may sit around. They certainly don't feel the need to do the housework that a woman does, and I, I might get some flack for, for that. But, um, but these are just some of the uh, trends that I've seen in my clinical practice. The study found that decoupling breadwinning from masculinity had concrete benefits for both men and women, whereas men's psychological well-being and health increased as their wives took on more economic responsibility. Women's psychological well-being also improved as they took on. So that's something to remember. So don't feel badly if you actually, as a mother, as a woman, have to go out into the workplace. Your health may be better. You may feel better. You may feel more confident. You may have better psychological well-being. A lot of people find it difficulty, uh, find difficulty in only speaking to children or uh, children that don't talk back yet or uh, other people who are in that baby or toddler or uh, young age mode. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a, a little bit of pressure, too, on women when they're working outside of the home to actually take a little bit better care of themselves. And that's an issue in the bedroom as well around sexual desire. I often hear uh, uh Husbands and wives will say, you know, well, you know, she's let herself go or he's let himself go. And that's really important in terms of sexual desire. But anyway, I thought this was a really interesting study. And I think uh, we can all learn a little bit from that and have a little bit more confidence about our finances in our relationships. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW. Nobody loves to love these. These are fishers. As you may or may not know, I'm a registered nurse and a nurse continence advisor, so I deal with bladder and bowel health issues in addition to sexual health. But bladder and bowel health issues definitely impact, may impact a person's sex life, sexuality, sexual self-esteem. It may also cause sexual pain. So I've seen a number of patients with anal fissures in my office recently. An anal fissure is a tear in the lining of the back 
passage, so in your rectum, uh, your anal canal. It's situated in the anus, and it's usually at the back in the direction of the spine, but it can be in the front. And it's usually one to two centimeters long and runs vertically. It occurs with certain diseases, but it's also brought on by a number of other contributing factors. They are family tendency, constipation, sitting too long on the toilet, longer than two minutes. You don't want to do that. And, of course, stress. Stress brings on everything. The fissure usually passes through phases when it may begin with giving you a lot of trouble and then it's quiet and... But it can be a lifelong problem without treatment. But a lot of people are surprised. They've never even heard of a fissure or they didn't even know that this could occur. It's usually associated associated with an external lump of skin at the anus. That's pretty. Uh, and the patient feels that's the cause of the problem. And that's called the sentinel tag. The fissure commonly gives pain with bowel movements. And it, so that's why... If you're constipated, you can see why you're at greater risk for these, and uh, it's also very much more difficult to actually have a bowel movement when you have a fissure. It can also give you discomfort when you exercise or when you walk. You can have spasms of the internal sphincter. You can have levator ani spasms as well, high pelvic tone, sexual pain. This can result in thrombosis of hemorrhoids, the um, the spasm of the internal sphincter. You can then end up with hemorrhoids and also uh, lots of flatus and abdominal gas. And it also may act as a portal for infection and can cause bleeding. So the treatment of fissures are usually prolonged. You must heal them completely or they will come back. Even after it's healed, the tissue will take time to regain its strength. So for 40% strength, it requires three months of treatment and two years for 80% of the previous strength. And so it's like a vulnerable area uh, even after you've had it. So you must take care to avoid constipation. As I say in my practice on the North Shore, 80% of the North Shore is constipated and the rest have diarrhea. Um, and that is true. Like nobody has normal bowel movements. There is a Bristol scale for normal bowel movements. You can Google that and see what shape your bowel movements are. Don't get obsessed about it, though. But a lot of people will have uh, pellets, you know, round um, balls, and they'll be like, is that okay, Maureen? It's, no. You're, that's a sign of constipation. Also, uh, liquid stools can be a sign of constipation as well. So you want to evacuate from the top down, and you want to avoid straining, um, and also make sure your stools are soft. Drink plenty of water. But the first-line treatment for a fissure is the use of an ointment that contains nitroglycerin, and that's the same medication that's used for the heart. And this relaxes the muscle from its spasm around the anus, and it increases the blood flow to the scarred fissure. So you, it's all about blood flow. Everything's about blood flow. Sex is about blood flow. Healing's about blood flow. If it's a, if you've only had it for a brief period of time, it'll, it should heal fairly quickly. But you don't have to do that right away necessarily. Uh, you can also, don't underestimate the value of the sitz bath. The sitz bath is a warm uh, bath about one to two inches deep in the tub and uh, it just covers your perineum and it helps to increase blood flow to the area naturally as well. So the rest of your body gets a little bit cold, especially if you're naked in the tub, and, uh, and the warmth uh, is driven to your perineum. 
Uh, the problem with the nitroglycerin ointment is that you can get headaches uh, very rapidly because it's absorbed very quickly, and so you can get pretty significant headaches, and so you want to drop that down. Interestingly enough, you can buy that nitroglycerin cream over the counter as one large tube, but if your doctor calls in a prescription to have it compounded, then you can only get it by prescription. So you can actually, <laughs> they they make this compound using Vaseline in like a one to five ratio, so one part nitroglycerin, five parts Vaseline. Uh, so you want to um, be very careful with that. Definitely talk to your doctor about that. Don't just listen to some radio host and her suggestion on that. Um, but definitely, you also want to avoid constipation. You want to take two tablespoons of natural oat bran, um, and uh, or, or you can try psyllium, metamucil, or another soluble fiber. And you've got to drink seven to eight glasses of water a day. Never sit longer than two minutes on the toilet. Uh, if you can't have a bowel movement, don't get frustrated. Don't get upset. Just come back. Uh, so leave and then come back when you're ready. You can also, in the morning, I find it's really helpful for people, once you've increased the soluble fiber in your diet, oat bran is a good way. Uh, you know, you have your breakfast and then have your hot drink, and that might be coffee. And that is, can one cup of coffee is fine, but anything more than that can be a bladder irritant as can be tea. I'll go through the bladder irritants as well. But so you have your breakfast and then you have your hot drink and then 30 minutes later, don't have vodka or gin and tonic in the morning. That's not a good thing. But anyway, have your coffee, sit on the toilet, elevate your feet up on a step stool and uh, sit there. That helps you to take advantage of the gastrocolic reflex and will help to open things up and you'll be able to have a bowel movement better than if you just went when you're stressed and you're before you had your breakfast and before you had that hot drink. So that's my suggestion and that may uh, be helpful for you. So utilizing sitz baths and nitroglycerin cream and preventing constipation, drinking more water is generally uh, a uh, treatment and this generally will work. But if it doesn't, uh, Botox, Botox can be used. Um, instead of your lips, put it down uh, on your anus. Anyway, you have to go to a doctor for that, of course, uh, but that can reduce the spasm and it also can supplement the treatment. But of course, it is very expensive. So if I find if you're a compliant patient with any of these things, they are going to work. So, you know, honestly, the patients in my clinical practice, and, and a lot of them are pretty desperate by the time they get to me, uh, so they are very compliant. And when they're compliant, it works like a hot dam. So some of the bladder irritants are foods, beverages, and other products that affect your bladder. So they may irritate the bladder muscle and they cause it, they cause it to contract. And that can lead to a strong need to urinate. We call that urgency. And and add to any difficulties you may have with incontinence. So if you're leaking urine, it may be that your bladder is irritated. So some of the bladder irritants are lime, lemon, grapefruit, all the citrus fruits and drinks, spicy foods, Mexican, Thai, Indian, Cajun. I also say the folks on the North Shore love their spicy foods and tomatoes, tomato products. So they love spaghetti. That's all they eat over there. Uh, Juices, sauces, fresh and canned tomatoes, their bladder irritants. And of course, alcohol. It acts like a diuretic and it creates a large amount of urine quickly. It irritates your bladder and weakens your pelvic tone. So really limit the alcohol. 
Caffeinated products, as I said, one cup of coffee is okay. Tea, and the rooibos tea is brutal. The rooibos tea is a big bladder irritant and also a diuretic. Of course, colas, Perrier water. I had one patient who knew that water was good to drink, and so she thought if you bought it, it was better. There's a financier. And so she was uh, drinking eight cups of Perrier water a day and was uh, uh, going to the bathroom like 40 times and leaking urine. Sugar, honey, corn syrup, artificial sweeteners, and carbonated beverages, all of them are culprits. Also, smoking. The ingredients in cigarettes are extremely irritating to the bladder wall. They they cause frequency, which is urinating too often. And the normal amount of time to urinate, what's normal, is six to eight times in a 24-hour period. But you can also get urgency from uh, the ingredients in cigarettes, a strong urge to urinate. And it also increases your risk of developing bladder cancer. And, of course, coughing from smoking causes the abdominal muscles to put pressure on the bladder and the pelvic floor muscles. And that may lead to weakening of these muscles. And, of course, weak bladder and pelvic floor muscles may lead to urinary incontinence. So just a couple of tips on bladder health for you because, you know, that's one of those things you don't know what you got till it's gone. We, It's like driving, you know, it's second nature. And going to the bathroom, it's second nature until it becomes a problem for you, and it's a problem for many people. 16.6% of people have uh, overactive bladder frequency, urgency, and nocturia. When I come back, we're going to get into some of those letters you've sent me. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW. I am Maureen McGrath hosting the show as I do every Sunday evening. I'm a registered nurse in the field of sexual health blogger at 50 shades of pink i also blog for the huffington post my book sex and health why one can't come without the other and they are so tied together and honestly people don't understand that and then they come into my clinical practice with a a sex problem or a sexual problem or a sexuality problem and i it's often a health issue And so recently I've had a slew of men come in with erectile dysfunction problems and uh, they're basically all the same. And they have heard the TEDx talk and they say, I have erectile dysfunction. I'd like to come and see you. And they've, they generally come in and they've been prescribed one of the PD-5 inhibitors by their doctor. So Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, Staxin, you've heard of them all. You've seen them on the commercials during the Super Bowl. We've well educated about uh, PD-5 inhibitors. Anyway, they take them and they get the side effects. They get the anticholinergic side effects, the nasal congestion, the headache, which really drives them crazy. Uh, that's our reason for not having sex. But they, they get a headache and they can't stand it. And sometimes the medication doesn't even work that well. So with all of them, uh, they just happen to be all in the 40 to 50 to 60 age range, and they all had one thing in common. And I say to them all, what you need to do is just to get to basic health. Uh, you need to, and that, that actually means uh, dealing with your weight issue, which they didn't actually think they had when they came into my clinical practice. And so I do a little mathematical equation for them, um, and they realize that uh, they they might be overweight, and it's not easy for a healthcare practitioner to tell people that they have to lose weight, especially when you 
tell ask somebody how much they weigh, like a woman recently I asked her how much she weighed and she told me probably around 190. She was 5'3". And uh, when she got on the scale, she weighed 215. So it's really important that no matter who you are, male, female, in between, intersex, transgender, you get on the scale. You need to know that number. And it's nothing about that number because everybody's bone density is different and muscle and what they've, uh, you know, their hydration. So there's many different factors. So just make sure that you're within the healthy uh, weight range. So all of these men have come back, and I'm just going to share this secret with you, (laughs) that if you are overweight, uh, consider altering your lifestyle through the, what you take into your mouth, through your diet. And I hate to use the, the word diet because I don't want you to go on a diet. I want you to change the way you eat. And so it's really a higher protein, uh, lower carb, low glycemic index diet. And so I have these men returning to my clinical practice you know, a month, six weeks later they're happy as Larry that they have dropped this weight, not just because they dropped the weight, because they didn't really care about that. One guy said to me, well, I, I'm actually a stocky guy. I'm like, there's no stocky guys. Sorry, that's an excuse. Uh, but they're very happy because once they return and they've dropped a significant amount of weight, and it's 30, 40, 50 pounds, their erections have returned. They are able to, and they're not exercising. They are not, and in fact, I tell them not to exercise. I give a particular diet to some of them. I suggest others join a particular group. You know, whatever floats one's boat, I can kind of tell what's going to work for one versus the other. And uh, they come back and they're really happy because they, not only are they having erections, they have more sexual desire, and if they uh, if they need to take, still need to take the PD-5 inhibitor, and that happens, they don't have to take the highest dose. Some of them are taking 25% of the dose, a third of the dose, half of the dose, and it's working better. So they're getting less side effects as well. So everybody's happy all around. Things are looking up out there, guys. So that is really my first line of defense for people who are for men who are experiencing erectile dysfunction, and it's very common. And they're all really surprised, and they think I'm going to come up with some, uh, you know, rocket science to get them to have a uh, have an erection. But uh, there, you know, there are there are men out there, to be honest with you, though, that may have had radical prostatectomy or um, brachiotherapy, and they actually cannot get an erection. And a PD five inhibitor will not help them. And for them, I do have uh, help as well. So it's not just in the form of exercise, or not not exercise, diet, sorry. Uh, it's not in the form of, of diet, but it can be. That may have to be the place where you begin um, is uh, with what you're eating. But there's also vacuum pumps. Uh, some people need penile rehabilitation. Some people require um, uh, the elator, which is a supportive device. So there's lots of different things that you can do for your erectile dysfunction. It's important that you get that treated. Okay, all right. So you know, fantasy is one of my favorite subjects. I have to say, you know, if you, you know, fantasy is normal. Okay, and it actually really helps uh, a sexual satisfaction. And but you know, 95 to 98 percent of people fantasize, which is probably why I really like it so much. <laughs> I'm just in the majority. Uh, So it's a very common thing to do, but nobody talks about that again either. But it looks as though I've been giving you the wrong information. And for that, I I apologize. But you know what? To be honest with you, my fantasy still may work for you, okay? Just because there's a new research study out there that actually 
tells you who you should be fantasizing about and that might make your relationship better. No, it's not your neighbor because as I have found out from one of my patients, their neighbor was some old geezer and she wasn't attracted to them. So that's not working for everybody. But it's still, it, it could work for you, but there's something that is better out there. The who you should be fantasizing about if you want to make your relationship better is your own partner. So as I said, everybody fantasizes or has sexual fantasies. Not everyone, of course, wants to act on them, and that's the key here. In general, men's sexual fantasies are more explicit sexually. They, men, are more likely to fantasize about multiple partners. Hello. And women's fantasies contain more romantic and emotional content. So fantasies reflect how we cope with our insecurities and whether we want to promote intimacy or escape from it. So if you're having trouble in your relationship, you may actually fantasize about somebody else. Um, And that can tell a lot about what's going on and what you want in your relationship and what you want to get out of your relationship. It also tells a little bit about your personality. But a, a study published in January of 2015 found typical types of fantasies for both men and women include feeling romantic emotions during sex, imagining a particular atmosphere and location, receiving oral sex, and particularly for men, and this is not going to come as any surprise to any of you, having sexual intercourse with two women. That is the number one sexual fantasy for women. What people fantasize about is determined by a number of factors, and that includes hormones, of course, your age, your past sexual experience, what's going on in your relationship, your relationship length, your satisfaction level, your own personality, your own education, what, how sex was talked about and discussed, uh, uh, what the discussions were like in your family when you were growing up. So people who avoid emotional attachment and their, your emotional attachment style has something to do with this as well. You may have a highly avoidant attachment style. You typically fantasize about casual, non-emotional sex. People with a highly anxious attachment style who crave emotional attachment and worry they will lose the person they love are more likely to fantasize about pleasing their partner. Hello, that's a nice one. People with a secure attachment style are most likely to fantasize about romantic, loving sex. So there's all sorts of different ways that we fantasize and reasons why we fantasize that way. But uh, a study of 349 people in heterosexual romantic relationships uh, support this fantasy that it is normal Uh, And it is normal to fantasize about somebody other than your partner as well. But the, the most recent research study of January 2015 in the Journal of Sexual Medicine... Uh, found that if you fantasize about your own partner, then boom, your sexual desire will increase. So that's who you need to be fantasizing about. No more about the neighbor, okay? I was wrong, and uh, and I'm okay to admit that. Uh, people who fantasize, one of the key reasons for this is people who fantasize about people other than their own sexual partner is because they felt tremendously guilty fantasizing about uh, someone other than their partner. And I was just trying to actually 
make this be guilt free for you. I was like, you know, fantasy is normal. You don't have to talk about it. Tell your partner. Um, and uh, if you feel guilty, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. You're not going to act on it. It's fine. So, but the people who had sexual fantasies about their partner, according to this study, had more interest in your partner. So if you want to get more interest in your partner, you need to fantasize about your partner. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW. Last week I had a question about hyperandrogenism and as specifically as it relates to sport. And so I thought I would just do a little background education on on that. And it's in regard to Castor Semenye, uh, a gold medalist uh, runner and from South Africa and uh, who has been known to have elevated uh, testosterone levels and people were thinking that that was unfair and so rulings were put in place in these most recent uh, Olympics that the testosterone level could not be any higher than 10 n moles per liter and and then that was actually stripped away um, this is a this is an issue there's this sex verification that uh, goes on uh, at the IOC and there are so many policies on this. A lot of people would think that I should be calling it gender verification, but no, it's sex verification. Gender is uh, uh, sociological, and um, sex verification is physiological, so or biological. Uh, so gender is social. But anyway, I digress. Uh, so people are wondering if this elevated testosterone level had something to do with her performance. Uh, of course, there was some disastrous handling in the previous uh, Olympics that was embarrassing, led to loss of dignity. Um, but, you know, people are wondering, does she have an advantage over over this? And, you know, with a little bit of an elevated testosterone level, and it's really about the equivalent of women who have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, 99% of the female athletes have testosterone levels, which is a male hormone, uh, generally, women have a little bit, but not too much, and it starts to decline at about age uh, 20. Uh, so women have a little bit, but not as much as men. But testosterone levels will impact, uh, sorry, first I want to say that 99% of the female athletes have testosterone levels below 3.08 n moles per liter. And that upper limit of 10 n moles per liter was, was three times higher than uh, the level that applies to 99 out of 100 women participants. And some people think that this is unfair. So, you know, the testosterone probably had a little bit of um, of an effect on muscle strength and competitive nature. That's what testosterone does. So it may have made her a little bit more competitive. And I say that uh it would be very interesting to see men and women compete together in team sports. I don't want to see um, something like a new a new set of Olympics for intersex or transgenders. Most intersex and transgenders uh, align with being female, so uh, or identify with being female. So, but I do think it probably gave a bit of an edge, um, but not. Uh, not so much, and it's very difficult uh, to tell. Um, and of course, now that there is no upper 
level limit for this testosterone for women, um, it's it's no problem. Uh, she is, she being Castor Semenye, is untouchable. So there's a long history around this, and it's a very uh, complex issue, and uh, it's, um, you know, the reason that they took the average uh, testosterone levels, that, that they made the levels 10 N moles per liter, uh, because they took the average testosterone levels of women with a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which it's already elevated at 4.5 N moles per liter. And then they added five standard deviations to it. And the they continued to add uh, three standard deviations. And so it it um, when the level reached a certain height, it meant that 16 in 1,000 athletes would have exceeded the cutoff. So they wanted to make sure that the upper limit would apply only to those with hyperandrogenism uh, or those who are doping. So, uh, But now they've actually pulled that away, so it's actually even more difficult uh, to figure out. So uh, the when the testosterone re- was reduced, Samanye's performances dropped off, and that was very predictable. So uh, that was from her um, previous Olympics. But um, now that we're not, um, you know, not as stringent on the levels, you know, it may have impacted her uh, performance this time. But um, anyway, so it's a, it's. There, I'm certain that this is still going to be an issue that will be dealt with um, uh, and we'll continue to see different rulings on this and and especially as the legal and scientific uh, decisions are made and and come out and they're not necessarily the greatest decisions but um, uh, yeah so that's that's pretty much um, how it is so testosterone for women there's no it's not approved by the FDA for sexual desire a lot of Women will be prescribed that, but there is actually no evidence. Maybe that's something we can talk about next week, and I think I'll probably have to get into um, more in terms of polycystic ovarian syndrome and what that is and what that means for women when they're diagnosed. And many women are very upset uh, when they're diagnosed with that, understandably so, because it can certainly impact quality of life. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW. Great music tonight, Jamie Benteen. Thank you so much for uh, producing this show. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW. Many of you may or may not know that I did a TEDx Stanley Park talk uh, this year, and I've had uh, just uh, countless uh, messages about it, but I've I've chosen a couple. I I wanted to say this one in particular one relates to the weight issue that I was telling you about. So here's uh, this email from this gentleman. Hi, Maureen. I know you do this for a living and I don't want to sound like a stalker. So after this, I'll let go. You made one small mistake. Erectile dysfunction be caused by things besides weight issues. Neuropathy, such as caused by herniated discs, which is what I have. I had major surgery almost 10 years ago and I walk with a limp, but it still takes a lot of work to get it halfway up. But I have the sexual desire in spades while the missus doesn't. And yes, doing it by myself is fun at the time, but anybody with a smidgen of self-awareness will see himself and cry. And yes, there are several avenues available for me, for a fee, sorry, you know what I mean, but they don't care about you outside the session, and it's all about money in the end. 
um, you know, no, actually, you can actually come to a my someone like myself or sex therapist. So that's not your only option, but a lot of people utilize that option, and and uh, you know, they learn quite a bit from sex workers, and especially about intimacy, and it, and it's actually a, an option that works for a lot of people. Um, so I wrote back, and you know, I really don't like to defend myself, but I just said I tried to name as many as I could. You know, in eighteen minutes, how much can you say? I already went over time, uh, and so chose the term medical conditions, and neuropathy would fall under that. That. And uh, I said, most people who are type A and, and die of heart attacks are found to have a herniated disc. Not sure how much you weigh or what your abdominal girth is, but you perhaps had some damage during surgery, but I would bet that a low glycemic diet may help your ED and perhaps will allow increased optimization of one of the PDE5 inhibitors, allowing you to take a lower dose, blah, blah. You heard me talk about that earlier. So he wrote back, I went on a little bit to say, um, just about the ED is the canary in the coal mine. And uh, so he said, I do regular exercise and can do a 10-minute workout of 100 perhaps, uh, pu- 100 push-ups and 100 squats. I still look overweight at 5'8", 190 pounds, but I have good strength and can get around okay mostly. Uh, but I just need to talk more than anything, Philip. And, and then he said, I didn't mean to knock your lecture. I agree with the comments you showed me. And then I wrote, no worries, now you're stalking me. But um, the thing is, the, the integral aspect of that letter is 5'8 and 190 pounds. Philip, you are overweight, okay? So you need to take the weight off, and perhaps you will be able to get it more than halfway up. I promise you, you will. But exercise isn't going to do it. How strong you are doing 20 push-ups or whatever he could do in 10 minutes, that is no big deal. Okay, not that I can do them. but um, So this is another one. And my TEDx talk was about the no-sex marriage masturbation, infidelity, loneliness, and shame. That was the title. So I've had multiple, uh, 500 comments or something on there and um, uh, over you know 225,000 views. So it's striking a chord. But I talked about a lot of the different issues around sexuality and sexual health. And so it it's, is striking a chord with a lot of people. But this was one of the most brilliant uh, letters that I've ever received, and I've received a lot of them. So it said, uh, he didn't say whether he liked the talk or not. He just said, letter to my to my beloved wife for Valentine's Day. During the past year, I've seduced you 365 times. I've succeeded 36 times, an average of 1 in 10. The following is a list of why I didn't succeed. We'll wake the children seven times. Windows are open five times. It's too hot, 15 times. Too cold, 15 times. Too early, 52 times. Too late, 23 times. Pretending to be asleep, 49 times. Headache, 16 times. Toothache, two times. You have your period, 68 times. Too much to eat, too full, eight times. Not in the mood, 14 times. You'll mess my hair, 10 times. Watching the late show, seven times. Company in the next room, 10 times. The children are up, seven times. Total, 329 times. During the 36 times I did succeed, the activity was not entirely satisfactory because three times you decided the ceiling needed painting, four times you chewed gum the whole time, Four times you watched TV over my shoulder. Eighteen times you told me to hurry up and get it over with. Six times I had to wake you up to tell you we were through. And one time I was afraid I had hurt you because I felt you move. Honey, it's no damn wonder I drink so much. Your beloved husband. Anyway, I thought that was brilliant, very creative, and at least it kind of validated what I let when I let that cat out of that bag. 
Anyway, if you want to be more productive in your day, there's a few little bit of advice I have. Start with exercise. Go for it. You can try exercise as well. Drink some lemon water first. No screen time until breakfast. Eat a real breakfast and set goals for the day. Those are my tips for this week. Thank you so much for listening to me. Jamie Benteen, thank you for a bang-up job on the music tonight and the boards. And uh, next week, we'll talk a little bit about testosterone and some other issues. And uh, you can always go to my website, backtothebedroom.ca. You can go to YouTube and uh, type in Maureen McGrath, TEDx Stanley Park 2016. And uh, go easy on me, but don't stalk me. I'm Maureen McGrath. You have been listening to the Sunday Night Sex Show here on News Talk 980 CKNW.